Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to our third episode of The Subject, a podcast offering an alternative source of inspiration from everyday women that delves beyond the superficial. We are your hosts, I'm Harry. And I'm Claire. If you've had a little listen to our Taster podcast, you'll know today's episode we'll be speaking with Dr. Becky Ogden. She's recently completed a doctorate in Latin American studies with a focus on Cuba. Becky talks about how her love affair with Cuba led her down an unexpected path and into the male-dominated world of academia. She also touches on imposter syndrome, which is something a load of you identify with, as we found out in our Vox Pops at Stylist Live. We heard from girls about their strategies for overcoming feeling like a fraud. Let's start with Harry justifying our use of friends in the show. We happen to have interesting mates. What's that called? Cronyism? <laughs> it's like nepotism, but with friends. Yes. Okay. <laughs> We're just big cronyists. <laughs> okay, so hello. Welcome to the subject. Today we have invited our wonderful friend, uh, Becky Ogden, into the studio today. She is wonderfully hilarious, and we've got her here today because she recently completed a PhD in a very interesting subject matter. Becky, can you just tell me the title of the, of the PhD? Oh, God, that's a question. The title is, let's see if I can remember it, Understanding Cuban Tourism, Affect and Capital in Contemporary Cuba. Well, it's Latin American Cultural Studies. Okay. So tourism was the phenomenon that I was looking at, but it's, it fits within Latin American Cultural Studies. So I suppose we can start with, how did it all come about? The PhD? Yeah. So I studied French and Spanish at Manchester at undergraduate level, and had a year afterwards where I was waitressing and learning to drive and decided that I really missed learning. So I went back to Manchester to do a master's in Latin American studies. And while I was doing that, I had a lot of support and mentoring from a particular member of staff, uh, Dr. Parker Maraswamy at Manchester. She really encouraged me to 
put a proposal forward for a PhD, and I got the funding, which was kind oh of, wow, yeah. So is that based on sort of a pitch or an abstract? Yeah. Do you call it an abstract? Yeah, or, or a research activity? proposal. Oh. And my PhD was funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which is Amazing. one of the biggest wow. ones in the UK. So at the time, I wasn't sure really if I wanted to pursue an academic career. Yeah, but I figured, well, you know, it's like being paid to do a job for three years and. By that point, I was completely fascinated by Cuba and knew that that was something I wanted to become more uh, engaged with and learn more about. So, so images of like academia for someone who, who is in no way in that world are yeah. of dusty old, pale male yeah. professors. Um, have you found that to be true? I mean, anything I say would just be anecdotal. I'd have no way of backing this up. Yeah. But yeah. It's very male. Mm-hmm. And, so, and you know, universities vary. There are some departments, disciplines are have more men than women. But, yeah, it's an elitist... Let's be frank, like, higher education is can be really elitist. Mm-hmm. But I still... There's so much that I really love about it. I think mm-hmm. if you really love your subject and you have an interest and you want to develop, you know, pursue it, it's kind of the best job you can do. Well, for me, it feels like... What could be better than getting to think about and write about the thing that interests you most and teaching and doing other bits of stuff that I still think higher education, it's in a bit of a kind of crisis mode at the moment, but I think it's still so valuable and what we have to do is make it more accessible for all different types of people. So how did your fascination with Cuba come about? So I went to Argentina on my year abroad, my degree, and from that point I knew it was kind of Latin America was... The one. The, the, the one. <laughs> it got <laughs> into my skin and that was it. I knew that was my total obsession from that point onwards. And during the course of the Masters, I just read and read and read loads about Cuba. And it just seemed to me, how is it possible that this place exists? It's a complete historical anomaly in a way. It's completely yeah. one-off. Why is that I don't know much about Cuba? Okay, so Cuban culture is really interesting because it's um, characterised by a lot of fusion. So because Cuba was one of the last countries in the Caribbean. In fact, it was the last country, I think. You really? might have to fact-check this. I will fact-check that. So I did fact-check, and she's totally right. Um, to achieve independence. So obviously you've got the slave trade plantations in Spanish-speaking, well, across the Caribbean, actually. So Cuba's had sort of late independence, political independence. So then in the 50s, it was basically a backyard sort of playground for the US. So okay. the mafia had a huge presence there. It was the sort of place where the American Fruit Company had huge holdings. It was basically a corporate kind of backyard isn't the best expression, but it was completely culturally and economically enmeshed with the US. Mm-hmm. From that, the revolutionary sort of uprising, the guerrillas, there was so much sympathy for them because of mm-hmm. the way things were. People in rural areas were almost completely, you know, living in in poverty and there was no education and revolution in 59 aimed to basically target all of these social ills and did so in the most kind of dramatic fashion and it's kind of a testament to the uniqueness I think of Cuba that through so much antagonism with the US the US um, embargo where it's basically starved Mm -hmm. of like basic imports and things like that it's incredible that it's existed in the way it has and yeah culturally it's just so rich and yeah I'm completely in love with the place basically. When did this era come to an end? The big rupture in the revolution there's been kind of a few the moments of crisis have been identified but the biggest one by far was in 
the 1990s. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that the revolution was able to kind of sustain itself, the way that Cuba was able to continue despite the embargo, the US embargo, was through the support of the socialist bloc. The socialist bloc bought sugar at a, you know, a, a higher rate and gave them oil and things like that and um, electrical goods. So it was a real preferential trade agreement. Soviet bloc falls in 89 and then Cuba was just completely just was plunged into this crisis that's it's almost impossible to describe how extreme it was I mean there's nothing to eat you know people talk about the the average weight of citizen Cuban citizen dropped dramatically over the period of 10 years uh, there was nothing coming in and out of Cuba mm. there were power cuts that went on for days at a time and that's when tourism comes in because uh-huh. that's when as in a moment of crisis, they called this period the special period, a special period in times of peace, so sort of austerity, as an austerity measure. The government reintroduced tourism to the economy, started investing in hotels in certain sort of resort areas, and that's where my sort of research interest comes in. So complete political rupture, complete social crisis, and then in the midst of this you've got thousands of people arriving every week to sit in luxury hotels... Um, and what's interesting is tourism originally was seen as this kind of desperate measure, this sort of mal necessaria, this sort of evil, necessary evil. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's now such a mainstay mm-hmm. of the economy and it's so culturally significant as well now. It's not going to go away anytime soon. So we have to kind of change the way that we talk about it. Obviously, tourists started to arrive in Cuba at a time when it was, you know, the country was in total crisis, mm-hmm. people were living hand to mouth. There was such profit to be made from having contact with tourists and using those encounters to help you get the things you need you know tourists were arriving not just with dollars but with cosmetics so you know soap was impossible to come across in the 90s wow in the 90s in the 90s in the 90s like you know there wasn't detergent to wash your clothes there wasn't shampoo you've got these americans and sorry canadians and europeans arriving all the time with just masses of stuff Mm -hmm. commodities that weren't just unaffordable in cuba but were unobtainable they weren't you couldn't get hold of them so just to give you a bit more context becky's phd was originally going to cover sex tourism which is what we're going to talk a bit about now we were slightly surprised to find out about it being a renowned destination for this i mean yes we weren't really ignorant to the fact that tourists and sex workers interact in all destinations but for us sex tourism was something associated with the likes of amsterdam and thailand In fact, in 2011, it was reported as a top destination in the Americas for sex tourism. So listen up and find out more. What makes sex tourism in Cuba unique? There's a few things. I mean, firstly, you have this historical context in which, you know, on the broadest scale, Latin America and the Caribbean have been, as a colonised region, there's a history of sexual conquest and, Mm -hmm. you know, that the whole narrative of colonialism is about going in and isn't it the, like the rape of Latin yeah. America isn't rape used as a metaphor for colonialization absolutely yeah. and I think you know even the export of cultural products since then things like tango you know all the sultry the passion mm-hmm. a lot of one particular writer um, called Magda Savigliana talks about how there's a political economy of passion so since colonialism that whole region has been exploited as a source of this kind of passionate, uh, sexualized, sensualized wealth. So there's that. There's the context of colonialism, which it instantly skews those contemporary 
relationships between mm-hmm. tourist and local. Um, in Cuba, obviously, the moral crusade of the revolution, which aimed to train women, trained former prostitutes in vocations, things like oh, wow. training them to become seamstresses and school teachers, and also target the social ills that had accompanied prostitution. So things like, you know, illiteracy. And- there was a very clear aim to get rid of prostitution, yeah. to clean it away, and that was all part of the moral crusade. Right, because it was it was a, an example of American imperialism at its worst. So then you have that context. Mm. What happens in the 90s is, as much as there's this really strange double standard, as much as people want to think that tourism is just a horrible, it's a horrible shock to the system, it goes against everything that the revolution has stood for. Everybody also wants to be able to eat and yeah. you know, to get soap and things like that and get a pair of jeans or trainers or whatever. And so contact with tourists is actually this really ambivalent thing where it's envied but also really despised. And if your neighbour's got a foreign boyfriend and they're getting stuff, you probably envy them at the same yeah. time as thinking that they have some, they're somehow betraying. Yeah. yeah. Apart from the fact that it was illegal, it was also really morally complicated in society in the 90s. Another thing that's interesting about Cuba and sex tourism is unlike places like Amsterdam or Thailand, there's no formal overlapping of sex work and the wider tourism infrastructure. So, for example, in Thailand, you'll have a casino that is also running a brothel mm-hmm. as some sort of linked subsidiary yeah. or something like that the two are economically intermingled what happens in Cuba is people working individually and if there's a pimp it might be like a cousin or something like that okay. Okay. so which is you know there's obviously advantages yeah. to that in that they're not you know, yeah. they're, they're, they have agency they're able to work define their terms but also they're probably more vulnerable as well so I think Cuba is, yeah, is particularly interesting mm-hmm. in that regard. One more way that it's kind of unique is that because there isn't this formal overlapping with the tourism infrastructure, those encounters occur perhaps more spontaneously. They're more likely to happen. They're more likely to be framed as a kind of holiday romance. And that protects the identity, both as the Cuban, who is probably thinking this is a sensitive thing to be known to be uh, having a sexual relationship with the tourist, but also for the tourists themselves, because no tourist wants to see themselves as someone who, yeah. well, very few want to, you know, want to be seen as someone who's... Ex- a creepy sex tourist. Yeah. <laughs> a so, all, so that really interests me, the different kind of discursive ways that people try and negotiate their own self-identity and reframe how they're behaving and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. One thing that you mentioned before, you were talking about is it Dr. Park or Professor Park? Doctor. She was obviously, sounds like she was instrumental in you yeah. taking the path that you've taken. During a PhD, I've had about 10,000 billion wobbles along the way, like pretty much on a weekly basis. Mm. Well, it's imposter syndrome. You feel like literally any minute someone's going to say, look, come on. We didn't actually think you, someone like you, could do a PhD. Like, it's really, like, paralysing. It's a real, yeah, debilitating. And what's so great about Pa is that she had so much patience in giving me pep talk after pep talk. And I think academia, I think in general, but academia, like a lot of areas, is quite hard. If you're a woman, sometimes you'll look at a job description and think, oh, well, I can only do half of those things. Whereas a bloke will look at it and go, well, I can do at least half of those yeah, things. Yeah. You know, and it's, academia is quite, it's bitchy in the sense that you're constantly critiquing other people's work, you're having your ideas 
dissected it's very competitive if you throw in a bit of lack of self-confidence in there that can be quite hard and I think that is gendered I don't know that's my experience something about the words that we use to children Mm. that I don't know whether it comes from that or whether it reinforces something innate Mm. but the one thing you always say to a girl is, oh, you're such a good girl. Like, good is really the word that we use for girls. And girls grow up thinking they have to be good and they can't make mistakes. And the fear of failure for women is so high. Mm. Whereas men are kind of allowed to, also physically allowed to run around, bash their knee and, you know, get dirty and messy. Whereas girls are told, don't hurt yourself, don't rip your new dress. And we just... Inhibited. Yeah. yeah. But I think it, it it's reinforced in many other you know, stages and areas of life as oh, well. it just continues. It yeah. completely continues. When did you complete your PhD and what mm. are you doing now? Oh. Is that, oh. Is that <laughs> so I, I was awarded in March this mm. year. Congratulations. Thanks very much. And uh, I'm temping at the moment, so total success story no I don't know but that's not a reflection of your capability it's a reflection of the state of the of the market it's so really tell us more about that so there's way more PhDs than there are academic jobs right and what I'm kind of deciding at the moment is am I going to be one of the people that does a PhD and then doesn't get an academic job and therefore should I think about what else I could do or maybe I should just keep soldiering on and should my hold plan, out yeah that's you my plan for now so the thing that I'm working on at the moment is writing mm-hmm. up my research and okay. turning my thesis into a book. I have this temp job at the moment and I set an alarm on my phone for when I pretty much when I get home, which says, sit down and write or you'll be a temp for the rest of your life. Ah, that's brilliant. <laughs> it's so good. Like temp, temp but the amount of discipline it takes um, for someone to hold down a nine to five job and then do mm-hmm. something either creative, academic, do extra work on top of that is is incredible. And I think that's something with our other, the subject interviewee, Lizzie. Mm-hmm. For years, she worked at a design creative agency. She hated it. Or she worked at some magazine doing graphics for them. But she would wake up at six in the morning, yeah. do two hours before work, and then do two hours when she came, yeah. when she came back. So I mean, I also don't have you. any, like, dependent, you know, no one's dependent on me. I don't have any children. So... Well, life is still... Yeah, yeah I don't know. It's, it's, it's a lot, but it's also something that I really want. And I, it's a re- I think for our generation, it's a real... There's a tension between, on the one hand, feeling that we were sort of missold. Obviously, we, we graduated right at the beginning of a recession. Yeah. Things are so hard financially when you're sort of trying to start your career professionally they're difficult on the one hand I don't want to feel entitled to the job that I want but on the other hand I think well it is different now Mm. than from our our parents generation somehow you just have to keep going don't you put one foot in front of the other and I think what I, I all these different temp jobs I've done I've done quite a few different ones this year there's always something you can get out of it I mean I didn't really expect to be working in a complaints department of a healthcare company but learn a lot about local authorities yeah. and how healthcare is organized you know I hate to go back to cuba but yeah well healthcare good, actually there's a really good connection with cuba because healthcare apart from education the big two sort of early tenets of the revolution the thing that they you know put mm. all of their resources and um money and attention it was healthcare and education and healthcare is, you know, Cuba has one of the best healthcare systems in the world. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's at the forefront of major biomedical research. 
Cuba has developed all these vaccines. It's kind of at the... And for a country now, a developing country, it's kind of amazing. It's got a lower infant mortality rate than the US, you know. Wow. So why is their healthcare so good? Really high human capital, if you like, really, really educated, highly skilled doctors and nurses. There's more doctors per capita than in Cuba than elsewhere in the region. In fact, it's like a really incredibly high... I don't have the statistics to hand, but it's a really high number. Turns out that Cuba has 6.7 doctors per 1,000 people. That's number three in the whole world behind Qatar and Monaco, according to the CIA. I'll post the link to that fact on our website. Also, the vaccine that Becky was referring to was for lung cancer, but there's also loads of other examples of them being really great at creating new vaccines and being just ahead of their game with healthcare. For instance, in the 1980s, they developed a vaccine for meningitis B and 55 million doses have been administered in Latin America and the Caribbean since then. This is the vaccine that was recently made available to all babies here on the NHS. Anyway, back to Becky. One of the biggest impacts of the US embargo was that Cuba was unable to get pharmaceuticals because the things that the US sell that nobody else sells on the same scale is farming machinery Uh and, well, industrial, big industrial machinery and pharmaceuticals. So everything else they kind of were able to import from other places. But what's really interesting in Cuba is this this whole alternative Chinese medicines and therapies Mm. are completely mainstream. And I used to be so sceptical about this stuff and I had really bad food poisoning when I was in Cuba and my landlady said, oh, I've got this herbal spray, like, spray it on your tongue. And I thought, yeah, sure, I'm like, about to die. <laughs> and within half an hour, I was totally cured. So because I think through necessity and through lack of resources and through this really high levels of education and training, you've you know, this incredible healthcare system, despite all the the lack of resources has kind of come through and developed. What was the most difficult thing about doing a PhD? A lot of time working on your own, which the periods where I really enjoyed that. The main criteria of doing a PhD is that you produce knowledge, that your thesis contributes to knowledge by saying something original, Mm. which is fine in theory. But I mean, there were certain most moments along the way I thought, who am I (laughs) to be doing this? I don't know anything. In a lot of ways, I still don't. But that kind of imposter syndrome that, you know, we talked about definitely that comes in there. Otherwise, it's a pretty nice life, you know. If your PhD is funded, like mine was, I was really lucky, then you get to explore the subject that you are most fascinated in. You That subject can change slightly. So what happened to me is I started off really wanting to only write about sex tourism and that kind of evolved slightly over the course of the, of the three to four years. So, yeah, I'd say it's generally great. And looking back, I'm remembering more of the good than the bad. But, yeah, there are a few. It's quite... Um, tough work emotionally I think to be motivating yourself to write every day and believing that you can say something that's worth hearing another thing that I wanted to speak to you about was do you think that tourism in Cuba is a good thing um yeah because economically it's was a total safety raft. Yes, it's problematic, but I also think that the people that complain loudest about tourism changing Cuba are tourists, which is kind of like, hello. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's quite... I think that's almost a research project in itself that I'm interested in, is how people who, as tourists in Cuba, are really anxious about the country changing this kind of desire to preserve a place in time. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you, my mum my yeah. keeps on saying it to me. 
you've got to go to Cuba before Castro dies because yeah. it's all going to change. And it's just like... That's not true, I don't think, anyway, because... But that's the general theory that's... Right. But like that's whipping around the Western Cuba world. on the brink of becoming McDonald's on every corner. Yeah. I just think it's a myth. I don't think that's going to happen. Why? Um, there's some really troubling kind of underlying assumptions there that if it wasn't... that I don't know, like that, that everything is so repressed that the second that somebody dies or somebody, you know... It's all going to change. That it's all going to change and mm. it's all ready to change anyway. I think, first of all, most people are really committed... I don't know, there's there's a commitment to the things that the revolution stands for still. It's not, it's not that everybody's living in this prison, you know, overseen by a dictator. I think that's kind of a bit of a, a myth, actually. But I think the other thing is a lot of tourists... A lot of observers, if they're not tourists of Cuba, because they want to preserve somewhere like that in time, is actually quite sort of colonial in a way. Because what's the what's the problem with uh, the country getting Wi-Fi? <laughs> you know, people saying, "Oh, isn't it terrible? Everything's going to change." No, what's going to happen is fucking sorry, but students who are studying medicine will be able to look up stuff on the internet. Or people who have family in Miami will be able to call them over the internet and it won't cost them a fortune. So people are up in arms about Wi-Fi, are they? Yeah, so Wi-Fi, this is a big thing this year. And actually, that's one of the major changes from when I was doing my fieldwork. You know, so much has changed during during the last three years. I just find it really interesting when when people from advanced capitalist countries don't want things to change in a country like Cuba. Because I think that reveals a lot about... I don't, I don't think any of those people would ever want to live without Wi-Fi. They wouldn't want to live uh, without medicine. And, you know, I, it, it's not realistic and it's actually quite colonial. What would you say to the tourists wanting to go to Cuba in 2016? Go, go. I'm not sure that it's... Yes, there are negative social implications, but that people, you know, it's also revitalising a lot of areas. It's so much of the profit made from tourism is directly channelled back into welfare, healthcare. It's not the beginning of the end, I don't think. Yes, it's a change from before the 90s, but it's Cuba, like every other country in the world, is evolving constantly. Of course it is. If you want to go and see Cuba go because it's amazing and it's beautiful and there's so much you can get from from being there but is it going to change in the next five minutes irrevocably forever with mcdonald's in every corner no it's changing all the time but for most average you know everyday cubans it's not it's not that's not going to happen but I could be wrong. <laughs> the reason that I say that is because I went read a trend report. Uh-huh. And it was saying that Cuba's the place to go, 2016. So I've got this report oh. here. It says, <clears throat> since the December 2014 announcement that the United States and Cuba had agreed to restore diplomatic ties, travellers have been rushing to see the last of old Cuba, even as brands are competing to be the first in. Airbnb announced in February 2015 that it would move to Cuba and has since begun offering thousands of listings in the country. Right. The first thing I'll say, Oh, sorry. No, no, I want, no, no, I want you to say Airbnb it. Airbnb is about 20 years late. <laughs> Humans have been renting out their own homes since the 90s, and the Airbnb is going to bring nothing to the equation. That's my... That's so interesting. They, Cubans pretty much invented Airbnb before it was a thing. That's what, that's what I think. You, no, like, actually, the, I've heard that Yeah, you can, stay in, you can stay in private homes. It's cheap, and it's a great way of doing it. I, I did laugh when I saw that Airbnb is going to like go and pioneer and it's like, dude, it's way too late. Cuba created that. Yeah. I think there's a certain arrogance or let's say misconception that the US is so, that US tourists arriving in Cuba will be so pivotal that it would change everything. Tourists have been going to Cuba in their millions 
year on year the numbers are increasing anyway. I don't think it's that significant. I, yeah, I think there's a an over there's an overstated significance, and particularly to do with U.S. tourists going to Cuba. I think that's kind of overblown. The relaxing of of diplomatic relations, the rapprochement, that is significant. But in terms of like the everyday person living their life in Cuba, they're still, everything's carrying on as normal, you know? Thank you for listening to episode three of The Subject. We've actually got some bonus material available for you lot on the website if you'd like to have a listen and hear more from the wonderful Becky Ogden. We talk about her career, identity and exposure to sexism. So have a listen at www.thesubject.london, spell L O. N-D-O-N. Now, don't forget to get in touch if you know anyone who you think would be perfect for our podcast. We're looking to speak with the everyday inspiring types and we know that there's loads of you out there. So get in touch via our website or holler via Instagram or Twitter at the subject London and this time it's spelled L-D-N's, not the full word. Speak soon, dreamies, and we'll leave you with an outtake of Becky's engagement story. A classic if ever I've heard one. I remember you telling me when, because Becky got engaged in Cuba. Oh, oh you did. Yeah. yeah, and I remember the story of when, like, you had your hilarious... Becky's engagement story is one of my favourite of all time. Oh. Can I hear uh, it? Yeah. Oh. Go on. Do you want to talk about it on air? Um, I was just a massive... Tom was basically forcing me to go on this beautiful moonlit walk, and I had no idea. What a dick. What's <laughs> I actually said, I'm not being funny, but you're being a little bit of a dick at the moment. <laughs> But like a bit bossy because obviously like, he had he had this he ulterior had motive. Yeah. Everything went wrong. Like it's supposed <laughs> to be sunset. The sun like set on the other side of the island. We were supposed to go on the walk on the beach. The tide was like completely. You know, there'd been a storm, so the tide had like come right up to the beach. There was no beach to walk on. Um, and I was just more and more horrible to him until he just kind of lunged to the ground <laughs> in one sort of fell lunge and went right. But yeah. That happened in Cuba. That was one of my favourite. It's a dead romantic place. It's gorgeous. And What's romantic about it? Oh, well, only because I'm buying into the same kind of stereotypes that I um, critically analyse in my <laughs> research. But, you know, it's, Havana is just stunningly beautiful. It's the most photogenic place. And it's the Caribbean. It's like, hello, you know, like... <laughs> Sunsets and palm trees sunsets and beaches. Sunsets and palm trees. Tropical and, fruits. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's hard to deny it's a really beautiful place. Now over to our roving reporter at Stylist Live talking about the very female problem of imposter syndrome. It's something I think I've worked on. Like I have felt like a bit of an imposter in a role and might have thought, oh, I'm not ready to do this yet or question my abilities. Um, even though I had, you know, a degree in the area and I had the expertise, I think maybe imposter syndrome is linked to a lack of confidence um, so that's probably what I felt. I don't know if you overcome it, I think it's something that can hit at certain times um, probably just a bit more self-belief uh, recognising what I could contribute in a, in a work environment um, and believing in myself so I haven't overcome it but I've definitely improved, it doesn't strike as much <laughs> as it yeah. used to. I've definitely been in the same situation, I have a degree I have all of the expertise that I need but you do get certain situations where you think, God, that person feels she or he portrays himself really confidently, like they know everything, and I'm sitting there in the back going, I don't know if I can compete with that. Yeah. So definitely, I think it's something that a lot of us probably don't admit to, but I have tried to, to um, 
deal with it my own way in personal development and um, I think as well speaking to your peers and people that you work with in the same industry and just self-assessment as well and checking in is one way of trying to overcome it you just have to learn to live with it and and be kinder to yourself I think imposter syndrome is something that has uh, kind of haunted me pretty much my entire professional career um, and and it continues to despite the fact that I'm very much now in a in a you know a relatively powerful position in the organization I work in and I I, I feel plagued by it but it's something I'm I'm learning to get over and I'm learning to accept and challenge myself on I think for me like when you work in a field which I do which is predominantly male dominated um, it's it's even worse you know you can really feel like oh uh, I, I got here because I'm like a, a, a tokenistic thing I got here because you know they they wanted to like hit some kind of quota uh, not that I'm against quotas I'm very much pro quotas um, but, you know you think to yourself yeah maybe I'm maybe I'm just here because you know they're making up they're making up the numbers and that is yeah really really challenging to get over but something that I do is I find women in the organization and I create a really safe space with those women uh, where we can talk about our challenges we can talk about needing a bit of extra support and then we just have a bit of a sisterhood and like that has actually got me through like so many challenging scenarios because I know that I've got a group of women in the organization who will bolster my confidence who will make me feel okay and they'll make me feel accepted and they'll listen and they understand so I think it's very much about like having a group of supportive women yeah so I have it pretty much every day <laughs> every meeting I go into I think particularly at work where you're in a room full of people who are really knowledgeable about something it's really easy to suddenly feel like oh my god I shouldn't be here like I literally don't know what I'm doing and I think you just go into autopilot to override it and your mind obviously takes over because you really do know what you're doing but I think it's always niggling in the back of your mind. I think the most reassuring thing is that I've spoken to so many people about it and even the most experienced professionals still seem to feel that way so it's a miracle if actually doing any jobs at all. I normally just do a bit of self-talk so I'm a big fan of like just taking a deep breath and saying actually I'm here for a reason and I do know what I'm doing and say just something or anything to get your voice in the room and I think that gives you confidence then once you've done that. I agree I experience it all the time but I've tried to adopt the kind of fake it till you make it approach of just kind of pretending that you know what you're doing and you're really confident and outspoken and have all these opinions and then you actually become much more comfortable thanks for listening now tell us what you think have you tried faking it till you make it tell us your stories you can email us at www.thesubject.londonlodon that's lot on <laughs> l-o-n-d-o-n thank you make sure you subscribe <laughs> on itunes or acast so you never miss an episode next time we interview fashion entrepreneur and ragyard founder josephine starsmore about how getting a compliment in a nightclub loo led her to launch a career in fashion When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.